Welcome to What Really Matters. This is Russell Max Simon. Today, we have the best guest that we've ever had on the podcast. And I'm not just saying that because she is my grandmother. Lynn Bundesen is the author of several books. She has led an extraordinary life. She most recently republished The Feminine Spirit at the Heart of the Bible. She is the author of a very good memoir called So the Woman Went Her Way. And that is not all of them. She was also a foreign correspondent for several of the most famous magazines and newspapers in the world, including Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. She was a photojournalist in China in the 70s. She, as you will hear her talk about a little bit in the podcast, worked on the Judiciary Committee during the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And there is much, much more. So please listen. Uh, it was fantastic to interview my grandmother. As I have sometimes said, I believe all of us uh, younger folks should be spending much more time interviewing our grandparents. And this conversation is certainly a great data point in supporting that view. So go listen and enjoy. Lynn Bundesen, welcome to What Really Matters. Thank you. I want to ask you, do you consider yourself to be a feminist? I wish I knew what feminist meant, but uh, the, def- the definitions of feminism now are floating all over the place. Uh, if, you, if it means, do I think that women should have equal rights to men? The answer is yes. If it means something beyond that, I'm not sure what that would mean, so I really couldn't comment on that. I just don't see any reason that women should not have the same rights as men period. That was sort of my follow-up question because as I've written, I've, I have you and my mom and my sister who to me represent three different kinds of feminism. And all I can say as a, as a man witnessing and learning about feminist movements over time is that it seems to me like one generation thinks the previous generation is wrong. And then another generation comes by and thinks that generation is wrong. So I'm not sure what to think about that. And I was hoping you could shed some light because you've been around for all the, all those three generations. Yeah, Have you witnessed that too? Yeah, no, I haven't. Cause I do think I've always felt that both, uh, Kristen, your mother, my daughter has always um, been more supportive of my equal rights and reminding me of them than I myself do. And I certainly think my granddaughter, your sister, takes for granted, what I would call takes for granted, uh, some of the rights that we women now have, which is to say to be able to get a car without your father or husband's signature, which is what I experienced. Um, And at the time I had to have my father's signature to buy a car, I made more money than my father. And um, this was in 1968 or 69 in California, apparently an avant-garde state. Mm. And since your mother has told me that I'm in the second wave of feminism, um, that would make, she would be in the third wave and your sister would be in the fourth wave. Right, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure what that means. I I think if it means they 
can take for granted some of the things that I could not, I would agree. Uh, I could not take for granted getting a house, uh, a mortgage by myself, even though I had a full-time job. Um, I could not get a car. And I was in my 30s. So, um, and and the sexuality um, of women and myself, the sexualization, I mean, not sexuality, was just endemic when I was in Washington and I was in my mid-30s and into my late 40s. And I think in so many ways I internalized misogyny that maybe the same way your sister and mother have not. So what do you mean by that? Are you talking about sort of like what I saw in Mad Men, like basically the that men treated the women just as sexual objects while you were working in, in D.C.? Is that what you mean by that? Uh, that is what I mean. Could I? Mm-hmm. I was up for a job as a White House photographer if I slept with the man who was in head of it at the time. And since I didn't want to do that, uh, that I presume that's one reason I didn't get the job. And also at one of the White House correspondence dinners, um, the head of the Associated Press in, in Washington introduced me to the head of Associated Press in the world and said, just look at her. Can't you imagine all these senators just giving her whatever she wanted? Uh, you know, which was not all that much fun. <laughs> um, and and it, it continued. And so... I think I fight that fight even when it's not necessary. Um, well, so this this sexuality issue, this is like one of the issues that it appears to me like certain waves of feminists disagree on. Like there's one wave that feels like women should be able to flaunt their sexuality as much as they want and and not suffer any adverse consequences from that. Mm-hmm. What world is that in? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, it's like the being like a proud, um, you know, like dressing in revealing clothes and going on a march. Another group is like, well, that's ridiculous. Women should not use their sexuality at all. But others are like, well, that's like women should use their sexuality if they want to. Um, as I said, what world would we be in here for that? Because I don't, I, I just, I have, you know, maybe 1955, um, I have mental and physical act, act, um, responses to your question. Um, uh, a, a mental, physical, and common sense about the world we live in. The world we live in is sexualized, period. It's not as sexualized as it used to be but it is still highly sexualized. And so knowing that if you're marching without a bra on or a topless in a march, that's one thing because that's a statement and you have the protection of the marchers around you and you're saying, look, this is, this is how I really feel, but I'm protected by this group and this statement that I'm in a march. If you take a very, very short skirt or go topless, on the street, you will probably get stopped and arrested for indecent exposure if that still exists. Mm. Is sexual sexuality used as a weapon against women? Yes. Uh, w- women are victimized constantly it, by the you made me do it attitude, whatever it was. Mm. And so if a woman is raped or killed by her partner, which is, as you know, 
flagrant foul across the world, um, in most parts of the world, um, then it's her fault. Mm. That sexualization is ingrained in the culture, whether it's Judeo-Christian culture or the culture in India. It is, women are prey. Um, Why is that Judeo-Christian? Where where does that, is that rooted in in the the religion? Yeah, in in Judeo-Christian religion. I'm saying it's also true in India, which is not a Judeo-Christian country. Right. So it, it, it transcends the religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what do the young women who count themselves feminists today, you know, millennials, women in their 20s, younger than that, like what do they need to understand? What is the healthy balance? What do you witness in that generation that you think to yourself, like, oh, they are missing something? Or, or are they? I, it would, I hate to comment on a whole generation, obviously, but um, <laughs> but my reaction to very young women in what would be called indecent clothing in my day. Well, not we, just that. I, my question was more like, you know, just the culture generally, not, not young women who are in indecent clothing, but young women who count themselves feminists, who believe yes. they're on this, you know, what are they missing? Or, or are they missing anything, or do you just not? I, I don't know that they're missing anything because I really couldn't comment on it at all. I, I Anybody who stands up for their equal rights is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And so I would be a friend of everyone in that generation who just assumes they have, they should have the same rights. As well, we've had, a, we've had a version of this conversation a couple times in the past where I've heard you say something to the effect of, well, people are people and humans are humans. And why can we not treat everyone as just a human being? And I think in my view, the younger generation is much more interested in treating women as women and men as men. And this extends to race and religion and, and all the characteristics of of your identity. This is what identity politics is, in my view, is accentuating the incidental things about your identity. And I've mm-hmm. heard you say something different than that, which is like, let's accentuate our common humanity. So am I summarizing that correctly? I would say that is how I feel. Yeah, I, I would say that. I don't... Um... I think it's great if we treat women as women, if we knew what women were. I'm not sure we know what women are. And I think that all the definitions of women that I've read are by men or women who are just groping for to find mm-hmm. that out. You know, I think um, I'd want to ask the women prime ministers of the varying countries, you know, the women prime ministers over the last 30 years, yeah, what they thought a woman was. I'd like to ask Angela Merkel what she thinks a woman is. Mm. Um, I think those are the the people that I would go to to find out what a woman is. Is someone who's engaged in politics and a way that transcends the what has been the pattern of political life. Well, what do you think on that question? What what is a what is a woman? What You've been around. Do you have a sense of it? Well, I think it just incorporates human qualities. 
period. I mean, it seems to me that women political leaders, just to narrow the field here, as I did, um, mm-hmm. understand how to deal with people as people. And they know how to deal with women and with men without overemphasizing one thing or the other. And so the Prime Minister of New Zealand, I think, is a really good example of a woman who is a political leader. Um, in so much as she even delivered a child while she's Prime Minister, I think. And, mm-hmm. um, and then the pictures that are shown of her now are those of compassion. You know, she's wearing a, a headscarf to show compassion to the people who are shot. Uh, in New Zealand and hmm. and so at that point she is mothering and she is a woman and she is also the political leader and she showed enormous strength the next day by outlawing all uh, fast action repeating guns you know whatever they're specifically called and so she took what would be called a masculine step um, by taking on, quote, gun lobby mm-hmm. and a mothering compassion that we saw, I think, in President Obama. I think he elicited both female and male qualities. He cried over certain things in public, lost his temper over certain things in public, and he was compassionate to the people insofar as we know and we could see. So I would say that both those people exhibited human qualities, not to the exclusion of one or the other. And whether those qualities of mothering and definite are actually male and female qualities is what I think needs to be explored. Mm-hmm. I think they're human qualities, not mo- not male or female qualities. And so I don't know that we're ever going to get beyond, in my lifetime anyway, for sure, whether we're going to get beyond labeling what's a mother, what's a woman's quality and what's a man's quality. I would like to see those things disappear and people just be taken for what they're taken for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does strike me that if women are going to continue to be the ones who get pregnant and give birth. Yeah. Um, and that might not always be the case yeah, in some I distant guess. sci-fi future. Yeah. It's already sort of happening. I mean, you read about it occasionally. Yeah, but, you know, for the vast majority of the Earth's right. however many billion people, this is the case. Right. And it seems to me that as long as that continues to be the case, that there's going to be some difference between the sexes that is inescapable. Right. And that we should just acknowledge and talk right. honestly about. And... um you know, talk honestly about the fact that women at some point need to take time out from work. Um, how long the time out is and how long they're supported during that time out, what they're entitled to when they come back to work. All those things are what we're fighting over now in, in the culture. But the fact is, like, if you're going to continue to have kids to be the the sex in our society that bears the next generation, then there's some differences we're going to have to talk about. Um, yeah, I think you, that's what? right. And I, and I think that brings us back to the main point is what is the experience people are having now on earth and what would they like to see happen? Yeah. And 
so I think the practical application then goes back to, are you going to march topless in a march? Are you going to wear a really short skirt in a dicey neighborhood or at a nightclub? Mm-hmm. Are you going to go home with some guy you don't know? Uh, that's the world we live in today. And a little bit of common sense and uh, an approbation of the world we live in today would not be amiss. Should not sound too strange, and um, and I think that for men to recognize that they are dealing not with a projection of their own sexual desires, but with another gender, would be another good start. And I think yeah. The, what do you mean by that exactly? Unpack that a little bit. Well, it's you know if a man is sexually aroused. It's not unheard of for him to say it's the woman's fault and she has to deal with that and she has to accommodate that sexual desire. And for men to see women as mothers or whores, to mm. use the, you know, mothers or their sexual objects would be a big step in the right direction. If now to go back to feminism, if that's feminism, I'm for that. Educating and tampering men's desires for their own fulfillment by the use of another human being. Uh, That is an anathema to me, but it's prevalent and it's all over and I hear it all the time and I experience it often. So, Hmm. yeah, it seems anathema to me as well. Like the, when someone says that, like uh, that, that exists in the world, I, that it's confusing to me and I'll, I'll never forget. I, I had this conversation with Hannah, my sister, your granddaughter, um, about our experience at boarding school together. Mm-hmm. And I was asking her, this was right after me too. And I was asking her about our experience or maybe it was during the Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh hearings, but I was like, you know, I just don't remember this culture that everyone says exists. And Hannah started asking me if I remembered certain things, like certain taunts that she endured. And I was like, oh, you know what? I do have a vague memory of that. And then she, she kept asking me if I remembered uh, what this other girl went through, and, and I didn't. And then she asked me what this other girl went through, and I didn't. But when, then she was sort of refreshing my memory. And it occurred to me that my memory of of my high school experience just didn't seem to have this like toxic male culture at all. But her memory of that same experience in the same place was like very much, she remembers a lot of toxic male culture thrown at her direction and in the direction of her girlfriends. Um, And that was just really interesting for me to hear from my sister that that, that our experiences or our memory of the experience was so different. Well, I and just the, said to me that. Go ahead. Well, it just said to me that some things were not at all emotionally resonant for me that were incredibly emotionally resonant for her. And what is was okay for a boy is not okay for a girl. And I think if if you're a man, you just don't know how much comes your way because of your gender. And I I think that's like they're talking now about white entitlement, Mm -hmm. which is a very, very, very real thing. 
um, in my experience. And um, oh, it totally is. You I, know, but, but yeah, no, I, I think there's also male entitlement, and mm-hmm. I think it's just there, it's just not conscious. I'm I'm surprised at men who are, you know, fifty, sixty, and maybe up to seventy. Well, and I, and everybody younger who's who hasn't come to this conclusion yet or tempered their own system looked at, looked at their own self. I'm just surprised at how much they really think they're entitled to, and and it's very difficult when someone is physically larger than you are and has the whole society behind them to go against that without ending up isolated. And yeah. um, I think that's a I think that's the thing about misogyny that I dislike the most is is how it isolates a woman if she's doing or thinking for herself. Yeah. And and the process of thinking for yourself, as you know, is a difficult one and the number one demand on us in the world today. Yeah. And I think that for a woman it's been much more difficult to think for themselves. And and I think this comes down to this thing about it comes down to a specific of makeup. I know this is a big leap, but um, being told by people who who know who are in the in the business of what it, what things look like that I, you know you Lynn are a beautiful woman, you'd be so much more beautiful if you wore makeup. And my um, and the the pain that that causes, the hurt that that causes, the alienation from that other person that it causes is extremely trying. And I love Alicia Keys because she said, you know, I'm not wearing makeup anymore. This is ridiculous. And she shows up at these varying things with no makeup or, you know, light lipstick. And she looks ravishing to me, but that's my standard. And that someone would have to make an announcement that she's going to do this is in itself noteworthy. And the fact that she's Alicia Keys and can do it and is happily married and has children, you know, it's a start, but it's, it's just a start. And <laughs> can main- I, one more, I, I want to ask you what the, what, what if, what if you're the kind of man who thinks the opposite, which is, um, you really think women are beautiful when they're not wearing makeup. Is that okay? Because one of my earliest memories is in second grade. And I don't know if this presaged the kind of man I would turn out to be, but I had this like, quote unquote, girlfriend who, you know, we would go on the swings together and we would sing Puff the Magic Dragon together. And like, she was my second grade girlfriend. And then one day she showed up in just caked in makeup. I remember this. And I stopped talking to her. And like, I'm sorry that I stopped talking to her, but like, for some reason I was just like, who is that person? <laughs> well, you were raised well, and we can say that in a podcast about referencing your <laughs> grandmother, mother, and sister, you know, you were raised quite well and with, with, with valuable artistic standards. I think um, I'm very sensitive to the particular problem about makeup um, because when, I, and it would be in the early eighties, I guess, I went to Norway for an assignment for a magazine uh, on to 
find out why there were so many women in the Norwegian starting uh, parliament and not in the United States. And I interviewed a woman named Kasi Kulman Fiva, who was subsequently been on the Nobel uh, Committee, and I think now she's on the board of directors of Statoil, or has mm-hmm. been recently. And, um, and when I was talking to her, she was uh, in her 30s, I guess. And she said, you know, you American women are wasting your lives and wasting your culture and wasting your politics because you American women spend enough money on lipstick in a year to fund full-time national daycare. Wow. And that is the truth. If the amount of money that was spent on eyeshadow and the smoky eye that Sarah Sanders had that the you know, woman comedian made fun of mm. or called out. I'm not sure she made fun of it, but she called it out. If that money were put pooled together, it would make national J care. So yeah. what's your priority? Is your yeah. and who dis, and who determines that priority? Which I think is how deep misogyny is, is that if women can have national daycare, if mothers can have it, families can have it then why would women stay home? And so much of this comes to capitalism because if if women are working, which they, which is a big part of what we were talking about, that I didn't say I was working full-time at, at a high-paid and really satisfying profession, mm-hmm. but then I, if you married a man, you'd have to marry a man like you. You know, you'd have to marry someone who thought that was great and then would support it. Right. Well, um, I want to go back to this thinking for yourself thing and how you said it was was quite difficult for women to to develop that. And I I thought that was like an interesting segue because I want to ask you about the beginning of So the Woman Went Her Way. And I want I want to hear the story about your first marriage and what happened and and then how you ultimately left. Would you mind do you mind recounting that because it seems like possibly an early illustrative example of you having to make up your mind to go be independent and think for yourself. Well, in a no choice situation. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Maybe Wait. that's the case, but oh, but right. tell 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 me what the story is. Well, the, the story I was and continued to be ignorant of so many things. And I'm not sure that's false humility. <laughs> that's just really how it is. Um, but I married young when I was a teenager and um, married a man who was told to me and purported to be in business in Chicago, where I grew up. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, but my uh, paternal family lived in Chicago and I spent a lot of time there. And um, and by the time I, and I went to one semester of college and then I moved to the city and got a job through all kinds of family issues, not of my own making. And so I married. And after uh, your mother was born, which is to say 11 months after I was married, my husband took me out to meet his business associates to dinner. And we went to a nightclub um, called Chez Paris in Chicago and we walked in and then we walked all the way through the nightclub and into a back room and someone said oh hi come in 
And uh, is this a story you want to hear or not? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so we walked into this back room and there was um, a table, three sides of like a banquet room table um, in, in this dark room. And we went in and my husband said, this is my wife. And this is Mr. Ricardo. This is Mr. Giancana. And these are my friends. And this one woman with bleached blonde hair and a lot of makeup had this mink coat and she had draped it over her chair. And she said to him, so she said out loud and I heard her. She said, so I said to him, I'm going to live like the second Mrs. Giancana. And I thought, what the, where am I? What has just happened to me? And I really felt that was my first out-of-body experience where I was could see myself standing in the room, but I was up on the wall someplace looking down at the scene. And so on the way home from... Wait, the, the woman said, can you repeat that one more time? The woman said, her, what did she say? Sitting next to the woman in another chair, she said, so I said to him, I'm going to live like the second Mrs. Giancana. Meaning I'm going to live like the second Mrs. Giancana. Right. Like she's going to spend the money while she's alive. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And so implying that the first, the first Mrs. Giancana had been killed. No, the implying that she was the first Mrs. Giancana, but there was going to be a second one. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. I'm with you now. Yeah. So, and since Mr. Giancana and Mr. Rosali and these people were in the newspaper every day and their pictures. I recognized them um, as part of the Chicago Mafia and anybody who's studied the Kennedy administration will know about them. Um, So on the way home in the car, I said to my husband, Kristen's father, um, there's been a terrible mistake. I can't. That is exactly what I said. There's been a terrible mistake. Uh, I so you were how old at this point? You uh, were like 19. Yeah, just 20. Just turned 20. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, this is the way you're going to live. And so uh, I, Kristen was uh, six weeks old. Your mother was six weeks old at the time. And um, so I called my grandmother, who was then my maternal grandmother, who was then in... Minnesota and said I had to come visit and I took the train with the baby up there it was a a day and a half or something and went up to my grandmother's um where she lived uh on a golf course with one of her sisters and her husband and and about four days later five days later um my husband showed up and took me back and then introduced me to the wives of these people and they came over to my house and explained to me what the deal was and the women go out on Friday nights and the mm-hmm. men go out on something and Sunday is family day and uh, you know and I just thought oh my god and this is straight out of Goodfellas it's the absolute way it was and um, so here's, here, it took me a long yeah, time to going. get out of it yeah well, here, here's the question is like you felt immediately that there had been a mistake and you needed to get out of it. But, uh, but many of the women who are in the exact same situation were like fine with it or maybe not fine, but definitely resigned to, right. to living that life. So 
What made you different? I I came from a different background. I I had never been out any place. I had dated, you know, only guys in the high school and college. Everybody who was knowable. There was nobody unknown in my life. No no outer world, just the world of the suburbs, of my family, of our family. I, I knew that there was, I knew that there were other races and I've always been uh, more than, more than sympathetic is really the bad way to say it. Um, I suppose but I didn't know that world. I didn't know that world, and I didn't know it. And I think the other women who married knew that world. Hmm. They knew that there was that was in it. I don't think there was anybody else who was as naive and stupid and innocent as I was, and didn't check references. I mean, I, so how did you how did you leave? How did you when? How long did it take? And and what happened? It took uh, well, it took seven years to leave, but. Uh, my it, it was in steps because very shortly thereafter um, that my husband was uh, had he was doing funding for these people and for the Teamsters Union and he and I actually drove him to meet Jimmy Hoffa one time and he mm. paid off Jimmy Hoffa uh, some money and the Teamsters Union were buying oh no they were the Teamsters Union wanted to or, organize an, a company that was in Indiana, I think it was Indiana. And my husband had some people from Deming, New Mexico had stumbled into his office downtown and they were looking for funding to, they had discovered a law in New Mexico that a municipality could issue revenue bonds and buy a business. And these guys wanted to buy a business and move it to Deming, New Mexico and my husband was involved somehow. I don't know the details because he did not share them with me. I only knew that he took $30,000 to Jimmy Hoffa because he showed me the money and I drove. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's all I know. So, um, but they, the Teamsters Union, no, so the municipality issued the revenue bonds, bought the business, moved it to Deming, and it, they shut out the rubber workers union and the Teamsters Union organized the business. And these people came to my house for dinner one night. My husband said, we, you know, prepare a meal for them. And they came and one of the guys said, we're just so grateful to you. We're just so grateful to you, Jim. You know, we'd like to build houses for you in Deming. And I said, I'll take one right there at the dinner table. And my husband said, just looked at me and like, what? And so they said, great, we've got this one already. And I said to Jim, you know, I said, I'm not going to live like this. So, you know, I actually said to him, you're going to have to kill me or move me to Deming. So we drove in his Lincoln Continental to Deming, New Mexico, and I moved mm-hmm. to the house. And at that point, I started to educate because I realized how uneducated I was, that I would fall into something like that, that I would assume that the physical world you see is the world. And, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. And I learned that in a sharp moment. And so I 
started subscribing to newspapers, to the Christian Science Monitor, to the magazines. I learned to do all kinds of things, can my own food. I went back to college. I drove 60 miles a day each way to go to college. In New Mexico? In New Mexico. I went to New Mexico State University for three years. And um, uh-huh. I and, did not know that. I don't know, think I knew that. And I took art classes. And in the meantime, Tommy, my son, your uncle, Kristen's brother, who is mm-hmm. not with us now, deceased, um, had terrible asthma, which is another excuse I moved to the dry climate. And he was just mm-hmm. a few months old, five, six months old. And so we moved there, but and I had him at the doctor's every third day. And finally, the do- both two doctors in town, sweet guys, um, said, we can't come over to your house at night with an oxygen tent anymore. Um, you've got to send him to the Children's Asthmatic Hospital in Denver. And I was driving home in this Lincoln, maroon Lincoln, barefoot, because it was so 100 degrees. And I heard this little voice saying, I will not be a Jewish mother. And I thought, well, I'm not Jewish, so I'm not sure what that's about. I guess that means I won't be too dominating fussy. I don't know what it meant. I really don't. Mm. Um, But at the time, then I was, and then my husband told me about Christian science because he had been raised in Christian science at a Christian science school. And um, so I called the Christian science practitioner Got, a, got the list from someone in town and said, I don't know what you people do, but my son has asthma. And she said, oh, call me tomorrow. And I put Tommy to bed that night, and the next day he woke up five pounds heavier, light, bright, shining, no um, asthma at all. So that was like the second thing I learned that I didn't know about. And then I thought, well, God, everyone must know about this because this is so obvious. (laughs) But of course, nobody, you know, it's like this is an individual thing. It's not collective. And um, so I became very interested and I started to study the Bible and the Christian science lesson. And I got very involved in it. And and I think that progress of of continuing to read and and looking at things and understanding them in a in a different way than just taking at face value the physical representation in front of me because the physical representation in front of people is exactly what they think. It's not, it's universal in some ways. You know, there, there is a terrible dictator in Syria that can be agreed yeah. on, but it's also quite individual. And I don't think, so, yeah. You know, so anyway, that's how it happened. And then one day Jim came home and he beat me up. And he went after Tommy and I locked the door and he broke down the door. And I think at some point he was so ashamed of himself. He said, you can leave. And, mm-hmm. um, and I got in the car and drove to California. So. Hmm. so this was the start of, I didn't know that Jim had been raised Christian science. He went to Principia um, for six years. Wow. Yeah. So, so this was the start of our family becoming Christian Zionist, and I, and I was raised Christian Zionist, and went also went to Principia. Yeah. And I want <laughs> to just skip skip forward to that time because when I was at Principia, every girl in the neighboring dorm had read your book. Really? I think all of them. Yeah. Oh. You didn't know that? No. <laughs> What, ha- what had happened was that probably one of them read it, 
I think maybe the dorm parent had read it and had started passing it around. And, uh, and so, you know, one, it just got passed from person to person. And this is, so the woman went her way. This is your autobiography. And so I was going through college with all the girls having read my grandmother's, you know, feminist autobiography. Yeah. I call uh, it a memoir, a not an autobiography, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Memoir. That's a better word. But, um, they were very attracted to a Christian scientist who had also lived such an interesting, compelling life. And I think it had to do with your career in journalism. But when you look back on the events detail in that book, like what for you stands out as, as significant moments, things that you remember that, that were significant for you? Um, what stands out to me has to do with the present political situation, actually. Um, it mm-hmm. Subsequently to being an editor of the Black Politician magazine in Los Angeles and subsequent to being becoming a photographer and, yeah, for New York Times and Los Angeles Times and things like that, and, um, and then living in Southeast Asia, um, and mm-hmm. living in Bangkok and going up to Cambodia during the auto genocide, going up to the fringes mm-hmm. of Cambodia. What stands out to me is that subsequently when I came back and started to write a newspaper column on women and religion, I was horrified and alarmed at the influence of evangelical Christians on the American political scene, huh. as I am today. And it is much more magnified today than it was then. At that time, it was... It had started with a guy named Richard Vigory organizing people to get Jimmy Carter elected, organizing born-again Christians. And, um, and then it, it spread to Ronald Reagan, to using that, that mailing mm-hmm. list of women who voted the way their husbands told them at that time, and to mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan election, to the Bush family and their influence. And now it is... We're, we're at the at the edge where Pompeo and whoever else wants to end the world in the belief that there will be a rapture. And th- if this isn't moral idiocy, I don't know what is. It makes my encounter with the mafia look like kids play. Or as they're saying now, this, this particular administration's um, events leading up to impeachment make Watergate look like child's play. And this... And so I went to Israel on one of these born-again tours and stood there with the pastor who said, this is the place where Armageddon is going to happen. And I thought, these people are are out of their minds. I tried to alert people. I wrote about it. You know, it just kind of went nowhere. And and that was one year. Of the so, year. Go ahead. Well, one thing that uh, we always want to ask our elders, uh, us young people living through these dark times, is are these actual <laughs> are these actual dark times, or or are we suffering from some recency bias where it seems really bad, but there were actually much worse times? Worse than uh, nuclear weapons. What's your sense? Yeah, worse than nuclear weapons. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that's exactly my point. Is that you know, <laughs> in the Cuban Missile Crisis, everyone was living as if the world could end tomorrow, and no one lives like that anymore. No, we've taken we've, um, we've incorporated that. Hmm. 
we pretend that it isn't going on. And I mean, one of the early lines in So the Woman Went Her Way is after I've been at a, what I consider to be an obscenely idiot dinner party in Santa Fe. I drive, which is a great scene. Yeah, and I'm driving home, and you know, passing the intersection uh, that you go to Los Alamos, the intersection of Trinity and Oppenheimer Drive, and mm. and people are going, you know, are acting like that isn't happening. They're acting like there is no nuclear weapon, or somehow it's like, you know, taking chocolate away from the kid, and you know, don't do. That. I mean, really, this is. This has never happened before. Maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis was. It didn't. It didn't affect me like that. We didn't hide under our desks. Uh, I think Kristen was uh, young then, four or five, something. But um, I. So just for, it isn't for the record, we moved like to New Mexico, <laughs> I lost Alamos, and I realized, oh, this is real. So I was going to ask you just to be clear for the record, like you worked on the committee that was investigating Richard Nixon, right? Right. I worked as I was a press secretary for the Judiciary Committee for the impeachment of Richard. Right. And this is worse than that. This is this is way worse. Than oh, that. yeah. Is that your... oh, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, you had and even even during Watergate, the, the burglars were second rate burglars. And yes, it was CIA or the guy had been in the CIA. And yes, it was Richard Nixon. And um I'd always found him, the, the few times I met him, to be a really difficult person. And his wife was terrified of him and terrified to be alive, it seemed to me. Um, because the one time I was with them in California at the White House, she grabbed my arm and wouldn't let go the whole time. So, I mean, she, you know, it was very sad. But it was, it's, this is, this is a, I'm, I'm prone to the idea that this is an, international criminal conspiracy. It could be, yeah. So I just want to get this one more piece of history that I just think is so fascinating. But you were, you were, I don't know if you'd say friends, but you knew Bob Haldeman, right? No, I knew Bob Haldeman, but I was very, 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 very good friends with John Ehrlichman. Okay, John Ehrlichman. And who was he? John Ehrlichman was the domestic counselor advisor to the president of the United States during the Nixon okay. administration. Yeah, and what was Ehrlichman's role in Watergate? I can't say that I really knew that what that was. I mean, I knew John before he. I knew him when he started to work for Nixon, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know what is, and I know, I know that I had lunch with his wife one time early on when they still lived in Seattle and. Um, and I may have still lived in Deming, actually. Um, mm. And um, she was saying to me over lunch that she said, well, we just have, oh, John's not home and we're building a new house and I've got five kids. And I said, well, why don't you ask him to help out more or something? And she said, because he's working for Nixon and we just have to get Richard Nixon elected. And I said, no, yeah. we don't. We don't have to anything. That didn't seem right. It, it wasn't that it was for Nixon or against. It was that zeal that seemed wrong to me. What... What Ehrlichman did for Nixon, I don't really know whether he had much to do with. And you knew him because he was a Christian scientist. That's correct? right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and on uh, this quick real-time fact check here, I Googled uh, Ehrlichman. It says that he created the, quote, group, the plumbers, the group at the center yeah. of the Watergate scandal. Right. 
And they yeah. they broke into Ellsberg's office, and I know he was involved with the, the press that right. was involved with that. I didn't know him that way. He also did a lot of good things, but um, that's not to excuse not to excuse him. John is a very interesting person. That's all. I no, of course. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. That's why I'm asking you. Like, so what's how did you know him? What was your experience with John Ehrlichman? I mean, how did I meet him, or how did I know him as a person? What kind of person was he? How did you know him as a person? He, as a person, he was just yeah, charming, fun, has a great sense of humor. He wrote your mother. Have you ever seen your mother's letters to, from the White House from John Ehrlichman? No. Oh, my God. Do we have them? Oh, yes. So we we went, Kristen and I went to New York or someplace, and we came back on the train to Lamy when we were living in Santa Fe now. And she was very upset because there was a sign on the train door that they were going to discontinue this route. And so she wrote John a letter. And she said, you know, wait, you've got to do something about the trains. And he wrote back on White House stationery and said, dear railroad riding Miss Bundeson, he said, I had the uh, owners of the Erie and Lackawanna and the Santa Fe and something in my office today, and I told them about your plea. And and then he just went on and on, and they wrote letters <laughs> back and forth, and they are just priceless, just priceless, wonderful. Wow. And, and that way you could learn about one part about John is about, you know, he was just, it was so much fun. And, you know, right. I didn't know about the heavy stuff. And um, and he he did a lot of a lot of interesting things, and he got in way over his head. There are people who think they can, uh, you know, cross the Niagara Falls on a wire. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and then he moved to Santa Fe um, because I brought him out here, and he stayed at Mary Jim and John's for I don't know six months, a year, or something. Those are our family friends. Yeah, yeah. and he, Abe remembers him as a child, flying kites in the park, and then he and after and then, and then he went to prison, and then he came back, and um, to Santa Fe and bought a house and lived here. And so, yeah. So, uh, whenever I talk about you to friends I've met, or maybe someone who just met you over dinner, or. You, you know, you're about to meet them. I sometimes I'll give them the broad strokes overview. Like, okay, you're going to meet my grandmother. She's a very interesting life. <laughs> um, she unknowingly married into the mob. That's the, <laughs> that's the first part of it. <laughs> but she's published several books. Uh, she was a correspondent for various newspapers. I believe also Time Magazine. You were on assignment mm-hmm. for them in China in the seventies. Yeah. Um, Wall Street Journal. No, yeah. I wasn't on assignment, but they the first pictures ever published in the Wall Street Journal were mine. You did speech writing for various uh, politicians involved with the civil rights movement. Yeah. California. You were you know on staff the Judiciary Committee during Watergate. This is a very interesting life you've led. And uh, I would say well above average. Um, So when you look back on that life, what are the things that you're most proud of that gave you the most satisfaction? You You and your sister. I was wondering if that was going to be the answer. It is true. Because I spent more time 
effort, pain, tears, and fun, and attention, a real attention in the Buddhist sense of the word, to YouTube than I did to any part of my career. Hmm. I just fell into these other things in a way, and um, and I loved doing them. Uh, I loved I loved working for the Democratic Caucus, the Black Democratic Caucus in California. Uh, one of the few places I could really say what I thought, and nobody would, and nobody hassled me. It's the only place I've worked that no men hassled me uh, hmm. sexually, and so I really, you know, I loved it. And and it was also early on in, in my being able to work, and 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 it was on the same time for women. You know, I mean, my life is coincidental with the with the what do you call them? You know, movements of of women being allowed. To work and do these things. Yeah. So, uh, so it, your sister, your mom will tell you about that. And then it's going well, to kind of with that. I feel like when you ask someone that question that I just asked you, like yeah. looking back on your life, what are you most proud of? You almost have to set aside the kids. You have to yeah. just set aside and like say, okay, let's say given. I think you're right, but but it is true that I spent more yeah. attention to it. You know, everything mm-hmm. mattered because it was growth and. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. incidental to my life. Mm-hmm. Well, like I'm 38 at the current moment, and I have a son who I think is just perfect and and amazing, and I I hope he grows up to be an amazing person. And it's possible that when I'm uh, an elder as you are, uh, I might answer the question the exact same way. I'm most proud yeah. of my son, but from where I sit now. I still have this overriding sense that I need to do something and leave something behind that is aside from my son. Right. Did you have that when you were, you know, when you were my age, when you were in the middle of this interesting life and this interesting career, did you feel the same way that that it was your kids? No, not my kids. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, but um and- I mean, I, I, I assumed that they were part of me. Mm. The grandchildren you don't assume are part of you. It's a different kind of thing. Mm. But I would say that the thing that, I'm, have, that I do feel now is the most important thing I've done in individual and that I should do more of is to posit the thesis that from beginning to Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a text of spiritual power for women, um, which is not quite recognized now women are still women theologians women ministers none of which existed when i started out Hmm. um were um are just at the point still of saying for the most part but jesus was nice to women and gee mary magdalene was the first at the tomb and you know where were you like you know that's when i slept with mick jagger i didn't but you know what i mean in terms of a memoir a book Hmm. that's (laughs) Uh, your brush with greatness is the men you were associated with and how they treated you. But, uh, but this, my studying the Bible, um, becoming interested in a book that I had, didn't understand at all and had no idea what it was about, uh, spending 50 years on that, 60 years on that. Um, I think that's the most important thing I've done and continue to do. And so the book, So the Woman Went Her Way, is really not about my life story. It's really about how coincidental our lives are with the word of God. And that's why there are these sections in that book about 
women in the Bible. Yep. To show that it's coincident, it's uh, simultaneous, and that there is no time, and our experiences are the same, or similar, or worth worth looking at is another way to put it. I don't want to make any you know dogmatic statements about it uh, because it's an inquiry that I'm in, and so I think that's yeah. And this this thesis that you have, I must say, I think it it strikes me, and I think it would strike many people as so different than what they assume to be the case, which is more or less that the Bible was as, as, and has always been an instrument of the patriarchy. Correct. Um, so give me, give me the, the argument. Can you, can you give, can you summarize? And I, well, I can start when I, when I, you know, figured out the 25 words or less, like we're going to put a man on the moon <laughs> and bring him back at the end of the thing from Genesis right. to revelation. Um, in Genesis, in the beginning the spirit of God moved across the face of the waters and the word spirit is feminine gendered. Now we know that gender does not in words does not necessarily mean the thing is gendered, but it does give an indication of where we're going here in terms of Mm. the text. Um, And then if you, and it's a plural feminine plural. And then if you trace that through the different days of creation, and through the book of Genesis, then you see that God is as much named, described in the Bible and responded to by people, men and women, as feminine, that there's no reason to say that God is a man with, you know, in the white beard sitting up in heaven or vengeful or vengeful. Mm-hmm. And, and yet that is, the you know, several thousand years we've been doing that um, for the most part. And so you just have to read the text with a, with a new thing. It's like, you know, I say potato, you say potato, not quite. It's like looking at something, you know, they have these things on the internet. Is this dress green or blue? Right. You know, no, I'm sorry. This is the same thing. It's how you look at it. How do, how do I look at these varying things? Did I do these varying jobs and different things in order to become you know, uh, an Annie Leibovitz photographer? Did I do these jobs to become a foreign correspondent who risks their lives in the war zone? Did I? No, I didn't do them for any reason. I did them because I thought they needed doing or they fell in my lap or I wanted to pursue that and find out what was interesting about that. And um, so I followed my curiosity and the, and the things that come up, and as small as they seem to be at the time, they turned into be being large things. So I've asked you what... But the big thing is my own personal study of the Bible. Yeah, so that's what the most the thing you're most proud of. What about uh, regrets? Do you look oh. back and think of any large regrets? Oh, God, don't even. <laughs> <laughs> don't even. It's, uh, that is the most difficult thing that I go through is remorse. I suffer with remorse as if, as some people suffer with the terrible disease. I have terrible remorse on several things I did not do. And I would even rather not say them, but um, <laughs> I, I, I'll say one, the one, the last one is that after Tommy died and, and I, friends invited me to live with them in Scandinavia, in Sweden. And then I went up to Norway to the family farm, which you've been to. Um, and and I got there, I went through this incredible snowstorm, which we are now having here. Um, hmm. And I took the wrong road and I went over the mountains and there's no 
there was no road. <laughs> it's a long story about, but I was in, it was like Job, and, you know, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? And, um, and I got to the farm and, and Martin, who is, was the owner of the farm, ran it, and a very wonderful, wonderful guy, attractive young guy, asked me to marry him and stay there on the farm. And I said I would. Hmm. And three days later, I left. And um, and he went off. And the thing is, and he went up to Trondheim because he was in school and he was going to meet the woman that he'd been in betrothed to. She'd been on a round the world trip. And then he mm-hmm. had he was playing in the band for three days and they didn't want to show me in town because people would talk about it. And I left and I have regretted that ever since. Because particularly with the American situation now and, uh, you know, would I like to be you know, have Norwegian citizen and have us all you know, access to that. Yeah. And so that's the last one. And the one before is even more painful in a way because it would have altered our life and Tommy's life and everyone's life. And that's when I didn't marry the movie producer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How many marriage proposals have you had? This is going to be the definitive answers in your life. (laughs) You can ask somebody else that. How many have I had that I know of that I remember? Yeah. Yeah. How many marriage proposals? <laughs> I, I don't know, 12, 16, something like that. <laughs> and and that's not counting the ones I stopped. And there was the time that I was going to marry Timothy Krauss, and we had the the whole ceremony scheduled, and Dick and Doris Goodwin were going to stand up for us. And I called it off. There's that one. There's another not nice thing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, okay. at this point, I guess remorse is the number one thing. So yeah, they are all ro- very romantic. The things that I regret are romantic. I regret not spending more time with Tommy, but they're all they're all losses that I regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, roads yeah. not traveled. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that. I'm going to have some more writing on that. I think paths not taken, roads not traveled. They all strike me as tragedies in a sense. And I yeah. wish one of the things about existence that I wish was different was that I could somehow just live more lives, more live yeah. different lives. You can, as you grow um, older, you do live more lives. It's yeah, true. but I want, I want all the lives that the forks in the road, no, you don't, you, you know, had as options for me. <laughs> no, you don't want them all because that would be too confusing. You want to have well, a few of them at least. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then you could yeah. start narrowing them down, you know? And yeah. so when I get to the, the point where I am, I've narrowed those down. There's probably a lot more there. Other people I don't regret marrying. There are people I don't regret yelling at. There are people I don't regret whatever, but, mm. um, but you can only regret so much and the ones that you can see, they'll stand out to you. The ones that were really shining jewels that were presented to you that you rejected. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything that you've been burning to say, but haven't said yet? Good luck on your journey through life, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I encourage everyone to go, uh, go find your most recent book, which was just republish the feminine spirit at the heart of the Bible. They can go find it on Amazon, or should they go somewhere else to buy it, or is Amazon the place? Amazon, you can get the Kindle for a good price, but it's too expensive. You can get it from the publisher. Just look on Amazon who the publisher is and get it from them, or ask your local bookstore to get it. Fantastic. All right. 
Thank you for chatting. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it.